The media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. Wouldn't it be great to speak with someone who actually worked with Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, the first man on the moon? Someone who was so respected by the Russian space agency that they put his name in large letters on the proton rocket that launched the first crew to the International Space Station. Well, I'm happy to say that that person, Larry Bell, is my guest today. Larry is an endowed professor of space architecture at the University of Houston, where he founded the Sasakawa International Center for Space Architecture and the Graduate Program in Space Architecture. He also co-founded several commercial high-tech and space companies, including one that he worked on with Neil Armstrong. Larry was one of the first Americans to be invited to meet with top Russian officials following the collapse of the Soviet Union, and he received Russia's two highest awards for his contributions to international space development. In 2021, he co-authored a book, which I love, which I read every night for for weeks. He co-authored a book with Buzz Aldrin called Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier. And we'll link to it under the podcast. Larry has also written 10 other books and more than a thousand opinion articles in leading publications across America. So welcome to the show, Larry. Tom, it's great to be on. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's so sad that we don't have Jay with us. I'm so glad, though, that he set up this interview because Jay did the background. <laughs> well, you mentioned you mentioned books, and uh, the second book I wrote, Scared Witless, oh, Prophets, yeah. Prophets of Climate Doom. I hadn't planned to write it. I had written my first book, Climate of Corruption. And uh, following that book, Fred Singer and Jay both wanted me to write another book. And I said, well, I don't. I don't want to uh, just take a bunch of articles and string together and call it a book. And I don't want to be redundant with the first book, but uh, I thought, well, I'll write it, but I want to pretty much put in all new material. And I dedicated that book to Fred Singer, who is quite a hero, I think, to a lot of us, but Jay also for the encouragement he gave. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have done it. You know, I sort of wonder with these older fellows who are such strong climate realists with them passing away gradually, do you see a new generation of climate realists coming into the academic world or are they all being fully wokeized? <laughs> I don't see the academic world changing. I think it's been really uh, co-opted by the woke world. Uh, I, of course, I can only speak for my own experience, but I also see it in, as I think you've seen it as well, in uh, other universities where they purport to deal with climate science, for example. And uh, basically, uh, I think they're not doing a very credible job. And I find it also disturbing that some of the crazy claims that are being made, you don't see them standing up and saying, wait a minute, we didn't say that. Yeah, to an end. You know, they. Uh, I don't think you're going to get a grant unless you find a dead polar bear somewhere. And I think. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't see them standing up when the media misinterprets and exaggerates the conclusions of their studies. I don't see them very often getting up and say, "No, I didn't conclude that." What are you talking about? <laughs> I guess they're afraid to do that. 
Well, from, from the time of my first book, as Fred Singer really got me interested in climate, principally because it drives policy. And I, uh, you know, I want to mention, I'll just mention that because it ties in with space. Uh, Fred Singer was the founder of the U.S. Weather Satellite Service. Mm-hmm. And so he was, you know, he was a very, very key person going back to about 1979 with, with the uh, satellites. Fred and Buzz Aldrin's, Buzz has been one of my closest friends for 40 years or more. We had a kind of a harrowing idea, the three of us individually, that going to Phobos, moon of Mars, as a staging area for going to Mars, might make some strategic sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, Fred knew also Buzz, and, and Buzz is a friend of mine. So Fred came to visit me in my center at the university, the Sasakawa Center. And, uh, and during the course of the conversation, we were talking about Phobos and Mars and that sort of thing. Fred mentioned that the US, the, the satellites weren't finding a hotspot over the equator that would have been predicted by other models. Right. There's no so-called fingerprint that was predicted with with the climate models. And uh, we didn't really discuss it very much, but it was maybe a year later and I was, you know, thinking about, well, Al Gore was in his heyday and talking about the world's coming to an end. But I had, I had this crazy thought, well, maybe there's something we can learn from climate that we can apply to spacecraft, you know. It's mm-hmm. a, it was a dumb idea then, it's still a dumb idea because the stuff we design is real simple chemical stuff and climate, as you know, is infinitely complicated, operates on different time cycles that are in the bottom of the mind and so on. But that idea got me looking at the history of, history of climate some of Lamb's research and so on. And uh, the more I more I followed it, the less sense a lot of the alarmist mantra became. But where I want to go with this is that with my first book, Climate of Corruption, it took me a, about a year or more to, to get a publisher. Mm, is that right? I, I couldn't I couldn't even find an agent. Uh, because at that time uh, again, Gore was in his full fury, and and uh, they were in the Kyoto Protocol, in all the United Nations urgency to uh, cap carbon and, and make a lot of money selling hot air and so on. That kind of thinking was very much of an outlier. Mm-hmm. That that uh, this climate stuff, of course, climate changes. We don't know that, but but the alarmist the alarmist stuff. I was able to uh, find up, I, I found an agent, very nice guy, he died prematurely young and he was a writer himself, but I found a publisher in Austin. In full bravado, I said, now, I want you to make sure that you have some liberal readers on this. And because the company I went to, they had three readers on a, you know, to determine our book. They had to be unanimous in terms of the book. I said, make sure you've got a liberal reader, which is a lot of bull hockey because this is Austin after all. Just yeah. liberal is Boston. 
they would, they would have no trouble finding a, a liberal reader, but they, 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 they did the book. And, uh, and that was, that was the, the climate question. But since the time I wrote, wrote that book, I've noticed an enormous change in terms of the electorate. I notice now half the Republicans, by and large, conservatives, I think when they see the, the, the craziness with the energy policy and so on, they're uh, disproportionately uh, believe that this climate alarm stuff is just exactly that. Mm. It's, and, and the conservatives have gone the other direction and, and the world's coming to an end. Wow. So the, you're saying the conservatives are now promoting the climate scare? No, I'm saying they, they've come over. Oh, they have. Okay, good. Because, because they see it connected with energy and, and ah. other radical policies. So there's a whole lot more people. Now, I would say half the public believes that this stuff is overblown in terms of the, you know, the crisis mentality. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the whole COVID thing has made people more skeptical in general about all sorts of extreme claims? I think that's true. Uh, I think if we, I think I think we'll see it increasingly with with the clampdowns on energy attributed to carbon dioxide and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I at, at some point people realize. None of the models have predicted anything. You know, yeah, exactly. Fighting. It's well, been was... going on now for, you know, for well over a decade, and the world's supposed to come to an end every every few years. Yeah. And, and and I think that maybe it's partly the calling wolf syndrome. I think, I think you can only claim an emergency so many times, and and they made such radical. Prophecies of you know the ocean rising twenty feet and 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 et cetera et cetera. We've had enough time now to see that those things aren't happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think I think it's a it's a combination of things. And I think as you mentioned with COVID, there's there's a lack of trust in government, and there's particularly I think a lack of trust in the United Nations. Mm-hmm. Where all this scare stuff is, you know, of course, it's coming out of Davos and, and the United Nations. Yeah, for sure. Where we well, see is a wealth redistribution plan, and the and the Kyoto Protocol and and, and Enron's Enron's involvement with with getting the uh, trying to get the uh, uh, Clinton administration behind that and so on. Al Gore and his uh, various scams and so on. I think yeah. people are waking up. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting that this group, the right climate stuff, you know, these are space guys, the space heroes, and they did specifically look at the climate models. Do you remember how, how do you pronounce his last name? Dwaron? Dwaron? How? Yeah. Oh, he did fantastic work with them and showing that the models, you know, of course, are terrible. And uh, so you've actually spoken to the group, the right climate stuff. You've spoken to that group, I understand. Well, yeah, you know, it's not the, the right climate group were all, to my knowledge, NASA employees. Mm-hmm. Johnson Space Apollo programs. And so they were, uh, you know, they were engineers. They were, they were people that 
had uh, used to deal with complex systems uh, and uh, pretty, pretty well rooted in, in math and, and physics. And so uh, some of them were modelers, but there's also others who were just very sensible engineers. Walt Cunningham, who passed away, was a very dear friend uh, uh, and, and actually did some writing on climate. Mm-hmm. Uh, is yeah, he, he wrote a little. He wrote a little pamphlet actually, and I'll see if I can get a link to it. Walt yeah. Cunningham, I should just tell our listening audience, the younger people, was the Apollo Seven command module pilot, and yeah. Uh, yeah, he's a wonderful guy. I loved him. He was at our at the various Heartland conferences, and he sadly passed away uh, just about two weeks ago. But um, yeah, so he's written about the climate issue, and also Harrison Schmidt was involved with Harrison Schmidt's a friend. Yeah, oh, is that uh, right? Yeah. yeah. And Harrison Bruger Chan, Chan did a lot of research. Of course, he's he's uh, aviation. Yeah. So, so I wasn't a member of the group. I, I I I was or I wasn't. I don't know. I mean, they would have welcomed me, and I and I had no. I'm just not an affiliation kind of guy. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't ink plaques in my wall, but but uh, I was never a NASA employee. Uh, I've, I've worked in the mostly commercial sector, and and I founded I founded several companies, aerospace companies, and the center at the university. And and uh, my partner was the chief engineer at NASA. We founded oh, exactly. something called Space Industries International, and the two of the, the two first uh, directors of the Johnson Space Center were on our board, along oh, yeah. with Armstrong. So so I've had close affiliations with NASA, of course, and have done work with NASA, but uh, most of my history is with with commercial companies, including NASA contractors. I've worked, you know, we've, I've had several organizations. We worked with, you know, Boeing was a partner with one of my companies and uh, and and other others as well. One time, Mark Marietta, and, you know, we did a lot of space station design for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my background is I started, I, I can't keep track. Lots of companies, once one grew to over 8,000 people oh. and, and uh, all, all pretty much high tech companies, some with satellite deals, mm-hmm. uh, several international ones. I should just tell our listening audience, uh, the right climate stuff. I'll include a link to it under the web under the web page when this goes on podcast. But they're going to be speaking at Heartland's International Climate Conference uh, 15, which will be in Florida, actually, in about a month. And I'll include a link to that as well, because there's going to be a special panel of the right climate stuff guys <laughs> who will be there. And actually, we have an article out on America Out Loud about the right climate stuff. It should be out actually in the next few hours. So, you know, one thing people I'm sure would like to hear about is what these personalities were like. For example, Buzz Aldrin, I understand, was called Mr. Rendezvous, and that at parties, you know, they'd have uh, drinking parties or whatever, he'd talk about rendezvous. So he was really quite, he is, in fact, still quite an academic, I suppose. No, uh, uh, Buzz Buzz is a very smart guy. Oh, MIT, PhD. Well, understand, you know, he was third in his class at West Point. Got a PhD in orbital mechanics at MIT. Yeah, and he was, uh, you know, he he did really one of the f- first successful spacewalks on Gemini. We, oh, we went for Apollo, 
but but Buzz Buzz is uh, loves to design as well, and and that's what I think our our friendship has gone back uh, many years, both at my center as well as his working with one of my companies that where mm-hmm. we did a lot of conceptual work. So Buzz Buzz is a very very wise guy, smart smart fellow, and and. Uh, We've we spent countless hours drawing and sketching concepts and yeah, and and our listening and audience. Probably, I knew Neil. Uh, I wouldn't. Buzz wants to go to the Mars. Buzz, I mean, he right. wants the. He's interested in the Mars. In Mars, I think he's given the thought that he's going to go, but but uh, <laughs> kind of been there, done that. And uh, so, so Buzz is an interesting fellow. He got incidentally got married a couple of weeks ago as well. That's right, on his birthday, January twentieth. Uh, his birthday is the day after mine. Yeah, and he married a wonderful, wonderful person. Uh, I I knew they were getting married, going to get married. Yeah, and they they went off and. Like a bunch of teenagers, kind of eloped, <laughs> and and I never. Uh, so that that evening, I talked to Anka. She, they were Buzz was getting an award, and that was that was the night of his birthday, and and uh, I was Nancy and I. But Buzz always stays at our home when he when he's in Houston, mm-hmm. and so we've gotten to know Anka as well, very very well, and uh, she's his new wife. Wonderful gal, and yeah, and uh, but, but Neil was quite a different personality. Uh, Neil was uh, more 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 quiet and less uh, noticeable in a group. Well, yeah, it's interesting because there's a picture of all the Apollo astronauts with a command module, and you have Neil. Uh, sorry, you have Mike Collins and. Buzz Aldrin right up front. And then they have a whole lot of astronauts. And in the very back, you see a little head, and that's Neil. So he obviously wasn't a showman, that's for sure. Well, I didn't know him. I mean, I I I, I was I would call Neil an acquaintance. Mm-hmm. I would call you know, Buzz a close friend. Yeah. One of my closest friends. Uh just because of the occasions, you know. I I would see Neil at board meetings. Or at special events for my company, mm-hmm. and and we would sit and have, but but not on a kind of one to one, let's have lunch together sort of thing because mm-hmm. we didn't live near each other and so on and yeah, and then uh, Walt Cunningham, well you know understand, Buzz uh, shot down two megs and you know. Over, over the Yellow River, mm-hmm. the Korean War, fighter pilot. Yeah, uh, in in his flight experiences, rendezvous was everything mm-hmm. to try to get the advantage in a dogfight. For sure. So so, Buzz's, I think, dogfighting days in the military uh, really got him into the oral mechanics and oral mm-hmm. mechanics for the listeners who don't understand this and 
most won't, and I barely do, is uh, figuring out trajectories of, you know, what's, what's, what highway do you take to go from the moon to Mars, you know? Yeah. It's, it's really, really, really complicated, and there's a lot of physics involved. A lot of it's kind of counterintuitive, and you got to time it so, you know, you arrive at the, you know, you arrive at the planet when you, you know, at, at the optimum time. So yeah, when it's, when, it's, when it's there, you got to arrive there. Right there. And you come back to Earth when it's there. And so, so it's very complicated. It's unless, uh, of course, when you work with something all the time, you can, you can kind of do these images in your mind mm-hmm. of these moving systems. But for, for somebody who, who, for me, for example, uh, I can't keep track of three ideas at the same time. I can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't keep track of moving objects. And intercept points uh, is because it's not most of it's not it's not part of our experience. Well, well yeah. Buzz was very good at that, and and so and Buzz had a had a has a very complex, sophisticated idea of cycling orbits. And, well, you, one thing our listening audience probably may not know is that if you actually look at the trajectory of a flight to Mars, let's say the seven month flight. It's about a thousand times farther in distance than the trip to the moon. And so, you know, people are telling me, oh, you know, we can be on Mars in 2030. And you'd be interested to hear what the Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield said about being on Mars by 2030. He said, yes, we could be on Mars by 2030, but they'd all be dead. <laughs> so, I mean, is a, is a seven month trip a thousand times longer voyage than get, getting to the moon? Is that realistic to do in the next decade? Let me answer that in a couple of ways. One is, I think the uh, the 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 will the the economic will to do it is is a big challenge. Mm-hmm. One one hand, it's got a lot of moving parts. One question is, if it's international, will all the partners deliver? Can they be relied upon to to deliver on time? Coordinate everything. Yeah, particularly we were up there recently, closely collaborating with Russia on, on common programs, and and we see how events on the ground and the planet, political events, change these things quite quite dramatically. Mm-hmm. As we shift into the commercial, we say, well, where's the where's the financial incentive? What? Why would we do it? We, there's in space. There's a, a the public has generally warm feeling about space because they think, well, it's the future. We don't want and, to. And, and globally, countries like India and so on also say, well, they don't want to be technologically left behind in space. Space again gives them bragging rights too, and that's important. Yeah. But but and and it's good for incentivizing children to learn about math and science and it. And, and and some people are curious about the universe and the cosmos and so on, but but those interests economically run pretty thin, mm-hmm. and and uh, and then we have the politics of of administrations changes, where often an administration wants to put their own stamp on something and have their own administrators and. Uh, I'm I'm of a I'm of a thought 
I don't want government to do anything. I mean, I, I, I'm, a, I'm one of these people that says, you know, I think NASA has been living on its past glory. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're, a, you're a libertarian too, aren't you? Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, I think I just see too much cookie cutter stuff at NASA, and and I think the real innovations coming out of the private sector, and 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 uh, Musk is quite a showman, but there's no taking away from, you know, he wasn't the one that invented landing a first stage uh, and reusing it. But he did it. <laughs> There's a big mm-hmm. difference between thinking about it and doing it. Yeah, and, exactly. And so, and I think there's other things that have come along. I think that that you know the the new telescope that went up, the web, is, yeah, it's marvelous. It's a marvelous feat, you know. And it's a both very very complex system and how it deploys and how it's built. Mm-hmm. But it, it really opened up eyes to. The universe and, and I think just uh, the web, web telescope in a marvelous way. And I think that the rovers that that were launched that were relatively low budget, where it brought space into our living rooms and 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 so on. Uh, mm-hmm. I, so I think that those kinds of events have kind of rekindled some interest. We're also seeing, of course. The one, the one commercial program that was has been successful, of course, is satellites, and look yeah. what they've done for us. You know, G- GPS and 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 everything is coordinating now with yeah. satellites. I've been involved also quite a lot on the international side of the satellite business. Yeah, well, as you can tell, I'm a space cadet. You see, I'm wearing a Star Trek shirt. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm- I've always been a super fan of the space program. I became an aerospace engineer, although I was more focused on the aero side. And Buzz Aldrin, I mean, he was my hero. I loved his sense of humor. Remember when he when he was getting down the ladder following Neil Armstrong and he said, being careful not to lock the door on the way out. (laughs) And then Neil responded, Yes, that's a good idea. (laughs) So I loved Buzz and I still do, of course. So we have to go for a break. But when we get back, talk about how you promote the space program, manned space flight, when you're talking to the general public. Okay, good. So we'll be right back with Larry Bell after the break. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a Made in America climate plan, a plan based on real science that responds to the real world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure a plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com. All right, you've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the pulpidone iodine-based nasal spray, Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. 
Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD. You already know Genesis plus HOCL is your best defense against viruses. But did you also know it's the most powerful weapon for eliminating airborne mold too? Customers are raving about the Genesis Fogger's ability to tackle mold problems and the bad smells that go with them. And we all know mold is a hazard to your health. There's no airborne invader that Genesis can't handle. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. AmericaOutloud.com. Seven amazing years. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Well, I'm back with Larry Bell. Endowed Professor of Space Architecture at the University of Houston, where he founded the Sasakawa International Center for Space Architecture and the Graduate Program in Space Architecture. So all those space architectures. Larry, can you tell us, first of all, what is space architecture? Yeah, I think an analog would be, if we look at medicine, field of medicine, there's the general practitioners who probably are not going to do brain surgery. And they're probably not going to replace your knee. But they have a good understanding of all the parts, including looking at, well, Mr. Jones, how are you feeling today? How's your morale? Uh, looking at, at your psychological state as well. Yeah. And, and so you have a general practitioner that doesn't claim to know everything and doesn't specialize and then they, and then you go to a specialist. Uh, you don't go to a dentist to get your knee replaced. You know, you go to, you you go to the person that does that a lot and has a lot of experience, and and they may not know much about anything else, but they sure as hell can put in a good knee. Mm -hmm. and, and and or oncology. I, you know, I'm a cancer survivor, and you have a great appreciation for for that. And that's a field that's 
of course, moving very rapidly as well. So space architecture is like the general practitioner. I see. We, we deal with every aspect of, of space flight. We deal with how do you launch things? How do you put stuff in the, in the launch vehicle? How do you land it? How do you, how do you develop orbital systems uh, that uh, you can put people in and they don't go crazy? I spent a year in Greenland and, and you look at isolation issues. When you were yeah. when you're talking about going to Mars, was it real? Uh, saying it's a lot of moving parts. One of the moving parts is space radiation. Oh, right. And, and we 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 talk a lot. We historically spent a lot of time thinking about solar energetic particle events, the solar you know solar uh, protons, mm-hmm. which you can sort of shield against them. I think with water. Water's got a lot of hydrogen and and uh, so on. These are low I energy particles. I worry about galactic cosmic radiation stuff. That oh right, yeah, they're much space. and yeah. it's very high energy. And it's kind of the difference between being hit by the shotgun, which is which is the solar energy particles. A lot of them versus being pinged with a pellet gun constantly. And mm. going back to going back to Buzz. And uh, this, I got a million bus stories, but <laughs> Buzz was with Neil going to, going to the moon. And, and Buzz said to Neil, uh, when you close your eyes, do you see anything? And, and oh, yeah, yeah. Neil said, yeah, I see some flashes. And Buzz says, well, how many do you see? And he closed his eyes, and quite, quite a few. Well, those are galactic cosmic rays hitting the retina of his eye. Wow. And so, and these are high energy. Uh, so we, we think about ionizing radiation. Ionizing is when the DNA can no longer repair itself. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you, you, you can have, uh, of course, cancer, or you, you know, you lose, you lose functioning cells. The uh, galactic cosmic rays, you can't really shield from them. Mm-hmm. And so, and I know buzzes, something you may not know about buzz. Buzz's mother committed suicide the year before he flew to the moon. Oh, wow. And her, name, her maiden name was Moon, actually. actually. And her, her father committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And, and Buzz, Buzz has always been very concerned about, about people uh, maintaining their psyche, you know, psychological health. And, and of course, we only have so many brain cells, you know. And, yeah. And, and when you look at cosmic rays hitting your hitting your retina, your brain is a much bigger target than that. So, I personally am concerned about galactic cosmic rays, and and we don't know, and and to some to some lesser degree, solar energetic particles. But that's you you put that on top of the challenges of social isolation. You're crowded together. You really don't have any privacy. Mm-hmm. You're kind of in a small can. So we do space architects. We deal with all these things. We design with how do you design structures in space? How do we deal? How do we protect people and equipment from the radiation damage? How do we land things? How do we get them off the lander? Uh, and yep. basically, how do we mine for, we call ISRU for local fuel? Are we going to get methane from Mars that we can use to initially refuel our ascent vehicles and eventually maybe? Maybe fuel depots are 
that you know that load of gold that that would drive commercialization mm -hmm. beyond you know beyond low Earth orbit. So space architecture, our program, we have students come from all over the world. It's the only only degree granting program in the world mm. uh, for this, and we have students that come come from you know you, you name it, China, Iran, yeah, uh, Central America. Is there a website that I can share with our listening yeah, audience so yeah. that's best to call us center? Just go to say Space Architecture University of Houston or mm -hmm. Scott International Center, and you'll find a, a big website with lots lots of information. We have. Some of our faculty, uh, our NASA graduates, our NASA employees, former NASA employees, but they're graduates of ours way back. I mean, it's kind of sobering to think that the people that I taught are back teaching in my program after retiring from NASA, you know, and-, and Yeah. And, and, well, uh, I'm, I'm especially interested in the Sasakawa's investigation of the psychology aspects, because I read Kim Stanley Robinson's trio, you know, this trilogy, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars. And the major problem in Red Mars when they first got there was psychological. It was super depressing. You know, they would go outside and it was just red everywhere. And, you know, the rest of humanity was like millions of miles away. So you actually at the Sasakawa Center, you look at the psychology of what is it really like? I mean, I think it was Discover Magazine. They had a few years ago, they had a picture of an astronaut and they said all the conditions exist for homicide on a trip to Mars. So, I mean, were they exaggerating or is it that hard psychologically? I spent a year in Greenland in a small base. I was an air traffic controller mm -hmm. years ago and, and, and isolation was, was particularly for a young guy, lots of hormones, uh, no women, uh, but very cold. I'm, I'm not a, I moved to Houston to warm up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But you know, there's there's the psychological isolation and and the stresses that go with that. And like you say, you you're leaving behind your your family, your friends, your dog, you know, and you have to be very very motivated to to want to do that. You have to have very good reasons to to want to do that. And that's well and good. Uh, we don't. From, from our standpoint, we're looking at how do we remove the stresses? How do we mitigate against the stresses? We're not, we, we know that, first of all, people are different, they react different. And, and whether you like the people you're with makes a difference. And whether, and whether they're international and you like the same food smells or music or, or you know, how many, do you have a mixed crew and are two, are, are two of them having a great time together? And Everybody else is pissed off. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but you know what? There's all these different factors. But we say, well, what can we do to make it more comfortable? You know, if we can make things easier to understand in terms of whether it's instrumentation or being able to locate things where you need them, things are floating around to to food. That's meals. Meals become times when you come together. They're very become very important times, mm -hmm. but somebody's got to wash the dishes. I mean, somebody, but you know, you got a small crew. So you're, so how do you make life more livable in a, in a crowded setting? I think, I think one of the, one of the things that I'm seeing more and more interest in is 
how do we use uh, information technology to maybe maybe you can speak to a holographic image of your daughter having her tenth birthday party, you know, and and oh, we, yeah. we can we can tend to somewhat normalize things and use information technology to to make those estrangements, those those distances kind of dissolve. Because I know when I was in Greenland, it seemed like the rest of the world is changing and yours isn't, you know. Your 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 world is fixed on this rock, you know, you're that you're on. And you're, you're and you're missing out on this life that's going on that left you behind. Yeah, you might remember, Larry, the, the group called Mars One out of the Netherlands, where they were going to send four people at a time to stay on Mars, and if they survived, they'd send another four. I sort of wondered at the time: is four enough for a actual little community to be mentally healthy, or should they be waiting until they can send bigger groups of people all at once? <laughs> I'm going to answer the. I'm going to answer your question another way. Yeah. When I was in Greenland, I didn't want to be there. I was in the military. Somebody sent me there. Okay. Yeah. However, in in past years, we also work with other extreme environments at SIXA, polar regions, oceans, underwater. Uh, I even teach a course in extreme environments, which incidentally includes climate. But uh, in the course of doing this, we designed some facilities for you know, for NOAA in uh, Greenland. And and I mention this because the scientists that I know that do polar research can't wait to go back. Oh, is that right? Because they're doing something that's important to their career, important to their interest. So when they get a chance to go back, it's something that they, you know, they really look forward to. And don't winter over, but the ones that do, I mean, they're, they're busy all the time. I'm 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 a I'm a busy guy. I find a million ways to stay busy. I barely knew COVID happened because because I'm I'm just I'm just busy. You know, I don't between teaching and other things I do. You know, having time is not a burden for me. Mm-hmm. I know friends that have retired. I wouldn't I wouldn't have their life for anything mm-hmm. because they you know as soon as somebody took away their car keys, they were basically you know dropped out of society. So 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 much of it, Tom, is a matter of what you care about and what you're interested in, what motivates you. And and if you really have a good good reason to want to go and you really have have this rare opportunity that so, so few people have mm-hmm. to experience this one thing that everyone talks about, for some people, that would be um, an amazing thing. However, having said that, there probably won't be any ticker tape praise when you come back. You know, the ones that the ones that went initially, the Mercury, Jimmy Apollo folks came back. You know, they were considered pioneers and heroes. Today, you know, who knows who all the astronauts are? Mm-hmm. So many of them. They didn't shoot down, you know, Migs in, in in Korea. You know, they didn't come out of military backgrounds. Mm-hmm. They fly an experiment, or they, you know, they, they work on part of a project that they'll take back to their university or something. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Larry, for the Mars One mission, they actually had on the internet while it was operating 
videos that they took of the volunteers who were going to go. And, you know, some people might think that, that oh, well, who's going to go and leave the earth forever? Is it somebody trying to get away from a bad marriage or what is it? Well, no, actually, the people that were interviewed and they said they wanted to do it because it would be starting a new branch of human civilization and, you know, it would actually be a, a grand adventure and advanced science and everything else. One of them, for example, he had a PhD from MIT. He was a world-class bicyclist. He was a good looking guy. So these were, you know, really, um, you know, advanced people, very, you know, they appeared, one of the guys was actually comedian, you know, because they felt that, oh, you got to have some comedy on the, on the, on the flight. But, but it actually brings me to my next question. And that is, when you're talking to the average person, you might very well say, oh, well, you know, with all these problems on the Earth, how can we afford to send people into space, let alone to Mars? What do you say? Do you, how do you, I mean, you don't have to convince me because, of course, I'm a space cadet. But how do you address the average person who thinks that it's a waste of money? I don't, you know, I, I'm not, I don't consider myself uh, a big preacher for this. You know, I, there are people who... Share my interests. Yeah. And, and they come from around the world. When, when I started doing this, this space stuff, I had been a professor of industrial design and heading a program at University of Illinois before mm -hmm. coming to Houston. I had relatively little interest in space. I wasn't, you know, I, I was a national award-winning inventor and so on. But I but I I did like coming, I came to Houston because because of the energy of the city and because of the innovation and space was a big part of that and, and that became a big part of me. So for me, space is a great problem-solving adventure. You know, and it's, uh, as far as building the case, I, I'm saying what I said before, I have, I have a natural interest in the cosmos. I've written 13 books. Some of them have to do with some fairly philosophical types of subjects. You know, why are we here? What are we doing? And so on. But I'm not on a I'm not on a missionary mission. Mm -hmm. My 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 interest is that is that people who can solve complex problems and get employed. Mm -hmm. you know, one one of the great things about my program, most of my people are employed before they graduate. Mm. They, they get employed. It means they're useful. It means they can they can solve problems. You can they're they're, they're proactive. They will figure out what the problem is. You know, it's one thing to solve a problem that somebody hands to you. It's another thing when somebody says, "Yeah, but that's not the problem. The real problem is this other thing." It's people mm -hmm. that think holistically, but also pragmatically, and they're they're not afraid of technology. And, and they have the confidence to say, well, if I don't know how to do it, I'll damn well find out how to do it. Yeah. yeah. Something, something I don't know about, I'll find out, I'll find somebody that can tell me about it. Yeah. And, and, and show me. And now, for me, it's, it's this thing of, of innovation where we can say the same thing about whether it's climate or anything else. Some people like to solve problems because of the challenge of solving the problem. Mm -hmm. Some people like to solve problems because they say, you know, the, uh, the world's gonna end as we know it if we don't solve the problem. And we, uh, you know, that, there's a problem in, in all the things in politics that, that you know, I, I'm a political commentator and I write 
about politics, but because I care about the country, I care about the future. I've got an investment, I've got children, and a lot of other people do. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of different reasons. My my number one obligation is that when people leave my program, they can do something. Mm-hmm. That they can that I would hire them. I, I would hire them if I had a damn big problem to solve. And I wanted a, I wanted some a real prof, real professional and and they bring different skill sets. Mm-hmm. We, we well, you know, my, my dad worked for General Electric and he always marveled at the Apollo project because of the management situation where you had 25,000 people working on such an enormous project and were so motivated. He said that one of the biggest advances from the Apollo was learning to manage extremely big, extremely complex programs. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I think when we say manage, manage is a word that means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes management means um, reducing a problem down to fundamentals where, where, where you're you don't lose you don't lose sight of the big picture when you work on a problem mm-hmm. you, don't lose, you don't lose sight of your goal you don't get lost in minutia and and you you basically are also have a, a kind of loop system where you you keep challenging your answers and saying it you know can I validate this, this answer now one of the challenges with spaces in the engineering community, Validating something means you can weigh and measure the results. Mm-hmm. We get into psychological issues and so on. We deal with a lot of qualitative issues that are that that are that are very subjective. We, we as humans are not standardized shapes. We don't have standardized minds. We don't have standardized skill sets. We don't have and so and I've I've learned this from starting several companies. You need people who are good organizers in terms of that they like to work with other people and they and they have a uh, and management means they they schedule meetings they they do the stuff i hate which, <laughs> which, which which is hurting cats no i have great admiration for them i just want to be working in the trenches i'm not a cat herder. yeah I'm, i'd rather be working but and but then you have people who are good marketing people and and they have and they are, you know, good-looking people, and they have, you know, compelling manners and dress well. And I don't mean to make this superficial, but you, you need real people. People. Yeah, a whole variety of people. <laughs> you need hard-ass financial and legal people. Yeah. You know, you'd be interested. You may know this already. Our listening audience might find this interesting. When Buzz Aldrin was asked you know, which should we do, protect the earth or go to space? And Buzz said, well, both. He said, you have to have the humility to protect the earth, but the courage and the adventuresomeness to move out into space. He said, either by itself is the sound of one hand clapping. And I think that he's right. I mean, I don't think it's an either or thing, do you? Well, I don't think anything is either or. I think uh, it goes, again, it goes into motivations. I don't know if we have time for this, but in one of my books, I put people in five different categories, and categories are dangerous things, but they're sometimes they're kind of fun. And but the, the key thing is to care about something bigger than yourself or outside of yourself. Yeah, there are some who are humanists; they're very people-oriented. The Mother Teresa, they're they're you know they're they're hospice workers, or et cetera. 
that, that our very people are in. The second category I call the visualists, which they're the people who write the poetry and the symphonies and 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 are trying to express things that that are uh, maybe philosophical, maybe they're objectifiable, whatever, but they're they're the artisans. Third category I, I call the scientists, and they wanna they want to solve the great mystery, not because necessarily they they can do it. it's quantum people are trying to understand quantum theory because it's because it's so weird and, and I want to connect dots that no one's connected before and for the sake of connecting the dots. The the fourth category I call the innovators. They're the better mouse trap people. They they're the engineers. If you can't, if it doesn't catch a bigger mouse or more mice, you fail. You know, yeah. and so and so it's it's the it's the Edison's, it's the Teslas, it's 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 the quantitative. And the fifth category I call the adventurers. So the ones that want to strap a rocket on their ass and fly to the moon. They want to yeah. they want to live in the, you know, they they and and the point is most of us have almost all of those things in us. And we're 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 a little bit of all of those things, more some things than other things. I'm least the adventurer. I'm not. I'm not going to forsake, you know, my dog and in, in the palm trees in Texas <laughs> to go to to go to this magnificent desolation as Buzz describes the moon. Yeah. But but you know, we have different mixes of these things in us. And we change with age, you know. Mm, our, yeah. our, our values change. So we, so there is no standard. Yeah. We only have three minutes left, and I was hoping you could talk about your book. Architectures Beyond Boxes and Boundaries, My Life by Design. And I'd just like to read the first sentence in the introduction. The girding premise of this book views life, everyone's, as our most important design activity. So can you say a bit more about that? Yeah. Um, I, I look at life as the same. We make decisions where we're constantly designing our opportunities and we're, and we're designing ways of solving our problems we have to deal with to adapt to, to the world, to a changing world. We don't necessarily have control over all those things, but we, 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 we have a, we have a, we have a design in mind and day to day because it's, because the circumstances are constantly changing, but, but we have a, we have general things that guide us in our values and there are experiences and so we're always improvising, mm -hmm. but but we're always designing. We're always consciously, at least we should be, attempting to take control of our life, to to bring beauty to it, to bring interest to it, and so on. And so it's a design it's a design activity, but the product is never finished, mm -hmm. and and it, it it's constantly morphing, it's constantly changing. And so the trick is that you one hand be guided by the right uh, priorities and be flexible and adaptable enough to recognize opportunities when they rise, but also to recognize dead ends mm -hmm. so that you don't put yourself on a track that doesn't give you an escape. So this sounds like a great book for young people planning their careers. Would you say that's true? I would think it's a it's a good book to, you know, I think age is irrelevant. I, I think that 
our life is always a work in progress. Yeah, exactly. Every age, and and uh, we as as we get older, we one hand we we have more experience to guide us. On the other hand, and I think we live in the most transformative time in human history with the internet, where a lot of the old things we've done don't work anymore, mm-hmm. and we've got to the force the, the you know the people that grew up with the internet and, and computers, which we didn't. Uh, have have an advantage in adapting in ways that are more of a challenge for us. And uh, I'll give a quick analogy. I think people that speak two languages can pick up a third language a lot easier, or the fourth language, or the fifth language. And so, and so, the more versatile we are, the more uh, uh, able we are to adapt and change. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, we have to wrap up, unfortunately. That's an actual very positive way to end our interview. My interview today has been with Larry Bell, Endowed Professor of Space Architecture at the University of Houston. And I especially direct people to the Sasakawa International Center for Space Architecture. I'll include a link to that because that sounds like a pretty amazing outfit, that's for sure. So thanks for being on my show today, Larry. Tom, I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Okay, this is Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story.